Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are returning to medieval theologian Anselm. And a couple years ago, we had an episode on him, specifically on his famous work, Cur Deus Homo, on the atonement. And we stood up for Anselm against his uh, cultured despisers and theological detractors, not to completely 100% or wholeheartedly endorse his atonement theory, but to give it a little more credit than it usually gets. Um, And therefore, we entitled that episode Poor Anselm, because we felt bad for how he has been vilified. But oh, in this episode, have we reversed course? This episode is, oh, Anselm, what have you done to the doctrine of the Trinity? Right, Dad? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, you remember, Sarah, that in that episode, we lifted up the virtue of his theological method of faith-seeking understanding. Uh, and with Anselm, that's to try to demonstrate rationally the necessity of the atonement And he says, by reason alone, um, which is kind of shocking on face value. But Lutherans should remember that in the great fourth article of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Philip Melanchthon defended justification by faith with exactly the same question, namely, why is Christ necessary? That question is invoked again and again and again. Uh, to demonstrate that the uh, Christ alone as Savior entails justification by faith as salvation. Now, of course... But, Dad, aren't we supposed to regard Melanchthon as some kind of pallid rationalist who lacked the fire and vigor of Luther, who roundly rejected reason as the devil's whore? Oh, that's really dumb. Um, um, <laughs> you know, yes, there are differences You know, I'm not between... defending that. Yes, I know. There are differences between Luther and Melanchthon, um, and Melanchthon lived another 15 years after Luther um, and took over the leadership after Luther's death. And, of course, that put Melanchthon in a a rather different situation. Um, um, But in his lifetime, Luther approved the uh, Augsburg Confession and its apology, and um, I think we'll have to do a podcast sometime on the fourth um, article of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession because it's probably one of the best things Melanchthon ever wrote. Anyway, he was posing the question, why is Christ necessary if salvation is by uh, faith plus our human works to make it valid? Now, with Melanchthon, of course, the authority of Scripture is explicitly acknowledged. And so the question of necessity is posed to Scripture's proclamation of Christ crucified as the power of God for salvation. And there is a contrast. Anselm's procedure is artificial. Now, that's the word I'm using. It's artificial in that he silently presupposes the deposit of faith. And thus the the hermeneutical point of the exercise to show the necessity of the atonement by reason alone is to come to an understanding of the rationality of what is believed about the saving efficacy of the cross of Christ um, uh, uh, without a circular reasoning 
invoked in a question-begging appeal to authority. And, of course, that's fundamentalism. God said it, I believe it, that settles it, end of discussion. To which Anselm would ask, yes, perhaps, but do you understand what God said? Do you get it? Is it just blind faith, just arbitrary faith? And, of course, there I think we can see a positive linkage with the, uh, a Lutheran understanding of the theological task. Well, I mean, there's no point to doing theology at all if there is no call or urgency or desire to understand. Well, and I think that's the, the secret appeal of authoritarian uh, versions or, or fundamentalist versions of, of the Christian faith. That's exactly what they positively desire, to bypass the question of understanding and just have a revealed dogma. And we'll get to the contents of the dogma, by the way, down the road. But the first principle is a principle of authority and submission to it. Now, it can be a living and active pope, or it can be a paper pope. But in either case, it's a question-begging appeal to authority. Mm-hmm. And a way of avoiding any kinds of uncomfortable thoughts or, or emotions that come up in the process of trying to understand. Or even, you know, rational accountability to the inquirer who asks you for the reasons, the good reasons for the hope that is in you. Or worse yet, a call to change one's way of living. Nobody likes that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, which might come with understanding, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All the more reason not to understand. So that's just by way of entree into this first and earliest work of Melanchthon, of Anselm, which is called the Monologian. Um, And why don't you tell us a little bit about that then? Well, actually, where I wanted to start is um, this podcast comes with some unusual preparation because we actually, or it it was your idea, actually, I think, to read it together with our good friend, um, Polish-American Lutheran theologian, uh, Peter Mawish, who teaches at Beeson Divinity School. We've both known and admired for a long time. And so the three of us um, got together. We we read the book on our own and then met twice over video chat to discuss it, which was um, great fun, Um, uh, adding an extra um, interlock to our own private conversations about theology. But I think, Dad, you didn't you suggest it because of your ongoing interest in the the origins and palpable effects of the doctrine of divine simplicity? Is that what it was? Yeah, it's, it's two things. Um, the, um, the influence of the metaphysics of philosophical metaphysics of simplicity uh, on the Western doctrine of the Trinity, and then also the pressure that puts on conceiving the Trinity on the model of a divine mind. Uh, And we'll get to that in the course of this uh, discussion today. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, I was game for it because having reread Cordeus Homo a couple years ago and being uh, more favorably impressed with it, I was like, yeah, let's do some more Anselm. Good guy that he is. And also we haven't done a whole lot of uh, medieval theology on our, our podcast. We've done more um, patristic and reformation onward, but not so much the stuff in between, which I am afraid is a, a little bit of a cliche coming from Lutherans. But there you go. Anyway, so I was eager to get back to it. But I, I think uh, all three of us reading this were like, oh, man. <laughs> so, uh, but I think we better uh, actually dig into the, the contents in order to explain why we were all rather dismayed by what we found. Okay. Tell us about it then. Okay. So 
Well, I think it probably uh, we'll, we'll we'll try to, as usual, do the good eighth commandment, put the best construction on things. Um, I think you'll talk about the larger religious context that um, uh, world religious context that Anselm seems to be implicitly addressing. I was thinking uh, in terms of um, Anselm being in a community of of monks of brothers who engage in prayer together and meditative prayer and this long tradition. Often nowadays, it's called centering prayer, but this um, uh, sort of attempt, a contemplative attempt to transcend the things of this world and um, clear the mind of clutter and um, somehow be more open to God's presence, to perceive God more clearly, less distractedly. And um, it seems that, um, or Anselm says at the beginning, that he committed this book to writing because his brothers were asking him for help specifically in prayer and how to contemplate the Trinity and how to how, how, how to think in a better way. Way. So there does seem to be, as you said, at in whatever the you know a thousand years ago equivalent of fundamentalism was, there was this desire on Anselm's part to guide his his fellow monks in a practice of prayer that would allow them, with their you know let's say redeemed by the life of the church and the sacraments, reason to truly understand how God could be the God that He has been revealed to be in Scripture, but without using scripture as a crutch. Um, Of course, uh, as you've already alluded to, and we'll get back to, there's a lot problematic about this method, but I think in, in his own way, he's trying to do something admirable and helpful for his brothers, which is invoke and call forth their reason toward the Holy Trinity. Yeah, Sarah, that you, you've really captured something important about Anselm there. Uh, the, the next little book after the Monologian is called the Proslogian, where we find Anselm's famous ontological proof for the existence of God. Um, we're not going to talk about that a whole lot today, but I just want to mention to reinforce your point about this, that Karl Barth wrote an important little book on the Proslogian and the ontological proof, which took the genre of prayer seriously. And Bart argued that Anselm's argument is really a prayer that God would illuminate what it means to believe in God's existence as that, and this is the famous phrase, than which nothing greater can be thought. You know, so that, and as we're looking today at the monologian, it's a similar method. Um, What does it mean to believe um, in God um, as one and God as three. That's that's kind of the uh, the inquiry that's being made in the, this first great book of Anselm, the Monologian. Right. So it is a pretty short book. So those of you who uh, are up for a challenge want to tackle it. It isn't that long and it's broken down into very short little so-called chapters. Um, I, I will warn you up front, it, it is a philosophical work in the sense that it is a great deal of analysis of terms and logical relations. So it is a bit on the dry side in that respect. But if you can like kind of let your mind slip sideways and try to think of it also as poetry, like poetry that's kind of call and response and repetition oriented, um, it might help you overcome the hurdle. But um, yeah, it's it's a different kind of writing than um, I generally seek out for theology or try to write myself. But 
Okay, so here is the basic structure of the argument. So Anselm starts by saying there is of necessity some supreme thing, something greater than everything else. And that, of course, is the the proof that he will develop more in the proslogion. But here he's just taking it as self-evident. There must be a supreme thing. And so a great deal of what then unfolds in the first part of the book is a kind of analytic reflection. So that means, in this sense, it's drawing out from the concept itself the logical um, consequences or implications of it, what that would mean. So if there is, as there must be, a supreme thing, then we can say things like, this supreme thing is the most existing thing. Its being is maximum being. And if that's the case, then it exists of itself only. It does not derive its existence from anything else. And therefore, in fact, everything else that exists must somehow exist derivatively from the supreme thing. Um, and and they, they are dependent on it, but it is not dependent on them. And this introduces, I think, probably hearkening uh, back to some Neoplatonic type philosophy, the idea of a sliding scale of being, that there is more being, things... Thi- all the things that are are nevertheless more or less existent. So he's uh, Anselm is drawing out uh, this concept. Um, but then we have the first of what seem to me several covert uses of scriptural language, even though he's trying to work only from logic. So he says, well, then we talk about everything that is not the supreme being being made out of nothing what can that possibly mean? And there seems to be a kind of a internal grammatical challenge here because the word nothing we can use like a noun, even though it implies not anything at all and therefore cannot be a noun. So a noun that is not a noun. So he spends quite a lot of time trying to, to spell out, you know, so if something is made out of nothing, does that mean nothing is a something out of which everything is made? Uh, this kind of um, <laughs> logic. It, it's, um, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, then Anzal moves on to examine omnipresence. So al- although this doesn't like go through all the, you know, kind of classical attributes of God, he does get particularly fascinated by omnipresence and ends up arguing that um, the supreme being is both everywhere at once and nowhere at once, and then goes back to saying that the supreme being is everywhere, and that's better than saying in every place. Um, some I think because um, every place is too atomizing and distinct, whereas the nature of omnipresence is is continuous or something like that. Then Anselm gets back to talking about substance, um, or we might say essence or being. These all seem to be fairly interchangeable terms here. And, you know, that a substance is, is the Latin word for the Greek usia, you know, the, 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 the nature or being of, of God, of which the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the three persons or hypostases. So what does it mean that this most supreme being is a substance? What is the nature of its substance, the substance of its substance? Uh, so he d- draws out some of the the logic of that. 
And then we get the next big covert move in the direction of scripture, which is that, again, if you are a a good Christian monastic who has been baptized and um, confirmed and communed and praised and is possibly ordained a priest and are saturated in the scriptures and the liturgy, then you know that when you talk about the substance of God, that implied in that is the three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if you're trying to get there without the crutch of scripture or revelation, then you have to find some other way to achieve the logical necessity of a trinity. So this is where Anselm starts to move in that direction. And what we find out is that the purpose of the monologian is not simply to describe the divine, the, the supreme being, but to make it clear that the supreme being must logically, rationally, analytically, and necessarily be the Holy Trinity. Does Anselm ever explicitly say, and voila, the Holy Trinity? I don't think so. Not in the monologian. Well, no, because he can't. But, well, uh, this will be my um, objection as we go along, is that the outcome has already been predetermined before the exercise was undertaken. And so it's an attempt to analytically prove that um, the supreme being must have this threefold but one nature. But honestly, there's no way you'd get here there from here without having a scripture saying, hey, hey, there's got to be three in one for this to work. Find it. Find it. Or, go there. Or, or in the deep background of Anselm's argument is the Neoplatonic Trinity, which we'll get to later on. But go ahead with the further analysis. Well, but yeah, but the Neoplatonic Trinity was obviously there at hand for the Christians to go, see, see, <laughs> it works. It's not just us. Okay. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll get back to that in a second. So, all right. So now we have, uh, we are moving into the part where we're going to prove a threefoldness to the Supreme Being. And so the Supreme Being must utter give forth utterance. Um, It is of logical necessity that the supreme being somehow speaks or communicates. And then Anselm has to consider, well, is this utterance other than, different from, of a different substance from the supreme being, or is it identical? So basically, is this utterance on the same plane of being as all the creatures that are derive their being from God and yet are made out of nothing, or is the utterance the same sort of thing that that the supreme being is? And of course, the answer must be that the utterance or the word is the same as the supreme being. And Anselm speaks of this word as being life, Truth, the knowledge, that by which all things are made, again, some, as far as I'm concerned, covert covert gospel of John smuggled in here to make the argument. Then Anselm goes into analyzing the relationship between the supreme being and its utterance as being something like, hey, a father and a son's relationship, or a begetter and a begotten's relationship, and that it is an irreversible relationship. You you cannot um, derive a father from a son. A son must derive from a father, and the begotten must derive from the begetter, not the other way around. So these are irreversible, and analytically why that must be the case. So he spends some chapters developing this relationship of a supreme being and its utterance as being, gosh, like a father and a son or a begetter and a begotten. 
But then it turns out that the supreme being and uh, its word, because they are supreme, clearly must love one another. And that this love for of the two for one another is so powerful and true that <gasps> it is its own additional, um, what would you call it, iteration. And let's see, we'll call this thing the spirit, and we'll say that, well, since it clearly can't be a begetter or begotten, but must relate to the other two intrinsically, then I guess we'll say that it proceeds from the begetter and the begotten together. So again, we have distinctive roles and relationships that are irreversible and not replaceable with with, uh, the other two. Then Anselm spends some time explaining how none of the three actually need each other because that would imply a deficiency. They all have what the other have. Nevertheless, they are all distinctive and do their own thing. And then we get to chapter 64, uh, which is titled, That Although This Cannot Be Explained, It Must Nevertheless Be Believed, which sounds like some special pleading. (laughs) Uh, and then finally, the last uh, the last section of the book, um, Anselm develops, and, and Dad, I'll let you spend more time on this, develops the analogy to the mind, thought, thinking itself, and affirming what is thought. And then at the very end, Anselm tacks on some implications for the human soul. If we also have rational souls and minds that think thoughts that affirm themselves, then clearly the only rational and right thing to do is to worship and adore this supreme being above all other beings that we can know in this rational and analytic fashion, and that if we don't, we will burn in hell forever. Thanks be to God. He doesn't say the last bit quite so plainly. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, thank you for laying out the the structure of the argument, Sarah, Um, and that's a good job. Um, I guess I would like to um, supplement what you said with a a number of remarks. Um, And just a couple of historical thoughts here. I already mentioned the Neoplatonic Trinity that's in the background. It's in the background via um, uh, some early philosophical writings of St. Augustine of Hippo that Anselm is familiar with. I think this has been demonstrated uh, uh, quite powerfully by a scholar named Karen Rogers, uh, who wrote a book the Neoplatonic Metaphysics and Epistemology of Anselm of Canterbury, um, which I think is a very good sourcing. Uh, not, not, it's not so much that Anselm read the Neoplatonist philosophers directly, but via um, Augustine, he inherited or received this uh, metaphysical background that he was employing. And uh, as it turns out, the, the Neoplatonic Trinity there's several versions of it, but it basically is thought, thinking, and loving itself uh, on the model of a divine mind. And I'll say more about that in a little bit. But it, just to back up to the beginning, uh, the, the starting point, uh, as you said, is certainly in uh, the, the prayer life of the monastic community. But more broadly, uh, Anselm takes the human creature's quest for the good as a first principle of thought. In other words, following Augustine, we are evaluative creatures, constantly seeking the good. Um, and this is a, a constant, requires constant acts of evaluation about what is truly good. 
False goods can disappoint and even ruin you. True life depends on finding out, adhering to the truly good. So far, so good. But fundamental for Anselm, and this is articulated early on in the Monologian, is the broadly platonic dualism between the goods of the soul and the goods of the body, which provides a hierarchical differentiation in values. Namely, it's simply this, bodily goods are perishable, but the goods of the mind, and that's what he means by the soul, the rational mind, the goods of the rational soul are imperishable. Um, they think the platonic thoughts, which are timeless, spaceless, changeless, and therefore immutably true. So adhering to the good of the mind reflects the basic religious desire for and ultimately it attains to imperishable existence, perfect being, which is the creature's highest good. So we have to locate the whole project of the monologian in this uh, platonic uh, 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 metaphysics of the rational soul's quest for its supreme being and highest good. And Enzom would certainly have been assuming an immortal soul. So even when the body perishes, the soul is still going to exist and be accountable and have a destiny. So it matters very much that the soul is headed in the right direction. Absolutely, yes. He thinks it's crucially important. So uh, then notice in the process what happens to the thought about God. Uh, if you're looking for the creature's supreme being and highest good, then this requires you to conceive of God as a perfect mind or as pure mind. Now, what would be a pure mind? That is a mind without any embodiment, of course, because that's the problem with our minds. Not only do they have a beginning and an end, though that's kind of ambiguated by the doctrine of immortality of the soul, but certainly our minds are all fussed up with embodiment and the bodily uh, goods distract us from the true and eternal good. But a pure mind would never be distracted by bodily sensations or experiences. So a pure mind purely thinks only itself. The object of the pure mind is only its self-reflection. Nothing else can perturb it, disturb it, or distract it. There's something weirdly connected here to the cyber utopian dream of disembodying intelligence and being uploaded and imagining that intelligence is something that can exist apart from the body, that there is any mind or any thought or any thinking without the body. How, how is one of those weird cases of what goes around what comes around? Yeah, well, I think that uh, uh, I think that you've got me reading this fascinating book, Sarah, the Master and His Emissary by Ian, what's his last name? McGilchrist. Yeah, McGilchrist. Yeah, and uh, I think that very definitely shows the genealogy of, uh, of this kind of thinking leading up to the modern world and then perhaps the, the distilled essence of it appearing in this um, uh, digital uh, utopia that some people are dreaming of. But it goes all the way back, Sarah, to Aristotle's metaphysics, where in his chapter on the divine, he defines the divine precisely, precisely this way as thought thinking itself. Pure mind, 
thinking it's the subjects and the object are identical thought thinking itself mm. and why is that well yeah that but that's the point no one right. can bug me no one can bother <laughs> me no one can distract me no one can you know take my attention right. off of my perfectly beautiful self and that right. would be divine serenity right, right. bliss right. serenity yeah right it's pure bliss, right? So placid, un above it all, unperturbed, pure intellectual self-satisfaction. That's divinity. And then as a consequence of that, if there are any other thoughts in a cosmos that is other than the divine mind, these other thoughts can only be implications of thought thinking itself. They're of refracted thoughts latently contained within the simple self-intuition of the divine mind. Now, this is where this you referred earlier to this idea of simplicity. And so when you think of the divine this way, the perfect mind is metaphysically simple. That means it is not composed of parts which could come apart and so disintegrate, then it would be perishable, right? And it could die, it would be mortal, it would be mutable. It's also not composed of qualities. Take for a biblical example, like the tension between justice and mercy, where qualities could potentially conflict with each other. But are one, but according to simplicity, these qualities are, are simply nominal. They refer to nothing really in the divine simplicity. They are one and the same in the divine. Such qualitative distinctions in various divine attributes then can only reflect creaturely perceptions of a reality which is eternally ever self-same. So when we say God is merciful or God is just, those attributions do not reflect anything in God. They only tell us something about our relating to the perfect being. And finally, perfect being could not be composed of any relationships which would make it dependent on anything other than itself. You mentioned that already. So that's this what I want to This is a very cold, to. cold depiction of the divinity, and it just... I mean, I, I know obviously I, I'm I'm sitting much later in history where a lot of great theologians have have worked to decompose this interrelationship of of a Neoplatonic or Aristotelian account of God from the biblical one, but it's very hard to see how that even comes close to being the same thing as the God revealed in Scripture. Well, Sarah, yes, now I agree with you. Obviously, that's on the agenda I'm pushing. But I've noticed in our discussions with Peter Mahler, should we brought this up, your generation, your generation and Peter's generation, not my generation, your generation, this metaphysical doctrine of God is making a big time comeback. Yeah, but like among the reform, not among us good Lutherans, we know better. No, it's also among uh, certain kinds of Anglicans and Episcopalians. It's also among well, um, ref ref uh, Reformed Orthodox types. Uh, very conservative Lutherans hold to this doctrine of divine simplicity. 
So it, it well, don't lay it on know. me and my generation. I'm not responsible for it. Come on. <laughs> I'm just saying it's a living issue. It's not a dead issue. It's oh, it's yeah. making nothing a is ever dead in theology. Gosh. Right. Okay. Well, anyway, so what we see is this is basically a negative theology, an apophatic theology. We should just point out quickly, uh, Anselm's uh, uh, construction of God as supreme being or perfect being, uh, later on he'll say that then which nothing greater can be thought, is a purely rational construction of deity. It's an inquiry into perfect being by way of negation, negative theology, which step-by-step step eliminates supposed imperfections. That's, the, that's how you get by reason alone to this idea of God as thought, thinking, and willing itself. Now, here's the point. That is not the same as the biblical idea that God is the title for the creator of all that is not God. As we see, I think we discussed this in the podcast on Isaiah, where we talked about the second Isaiah um, and so forth. Why? Because here in the Bible, creator of all that is not God is not an apophatic negative theology. It's a cataphatic theology of the self-donating, self-revealing God of the Exodus who shows his incomparable glory in saving deeds, making a way out of no way, the God of the Exodus, the God of the resurrection, a way out of no way, which then gets um, expanded in Israel's reflections on this into creation out of nothing, raising the dead and giving existence to worlds that are not yet there and so forth. So what you immediately see once you start uh, talking about that God <laughs> is that all of the problems of a composite um, God, a God that is exposed somehow to perishability, at least by affiliation with a creation and so forth, you see the problems of throughout the Old Testament of God's reputation being hooked up to the people of Israel and saying, ah, oh, I'm a merciful God, so I rescued you. But now look at how you're acting like this, so I should get rid of you. But if I get rid of you, people will think I'm not merciful and that I lured you out <laughs> in the desert to kill you. And so God gets into, like, you could almost say moral messes. And the same thing you see in the New Testament, like, what? God loves sinners? <laughs> that, that, how, how is that fitting a God who, who is truly just and truly right? And, you know, and then God even, like, sends his Holy Spirit upon people and they still mess up really badly. Like, well, that doesn't speak very well of the power of his Holy Spirit, now does it? <laughs> and, and so, I mean, you, you can see that um, it, it really does force the question of what does it mean to be God? Now, we also know that there are like um, modern solutions that are, are kind of uh, bleeding hard all over the place. And all three persons of the Trinity are, you know, exposing their guts and they're powerless and they're really, really sorry for you, but they can't do anything about it. You know, and um, or uh, I don't know, like a, maybe a process theology's attempt to say God figures out who he is by being with us um, in a kind of flaky sort of way. But but it is true that these are really different doctrines of God clashing with each other and they are not um they're not reconcilable, but you you have to 
recognize that there there really is a, a deep demand here for saying, what on earth do we even mean by that word that you like to spell out G-O-D? Right, exactly. It raises the question of what do we mean by G-O-D? Just notice again, just to back up what you said with a couple more um, Hebrew Bible Old Testament examples. When the Lord appears to Moses at the burning bush, the divine speech says, I have heard the cry of my people, and I have come down to deliver them. Now, think about that in relationship to the ideal of divinity as imperturbable divine self-satisfaction, that being God means nobody else can bug you. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And then think back from there to this great story, I think it's in Genesis 15, of the vision Abraham has uh, where he goes into a deep sleep having slain some animals and laid them out in the lane, the parts on either side. And in his trance, he sees a fire pot and a torch levitate and pass through this uh, aisle of slain beasts, which is a very dramatic symbolism of God invoking a curse upon his own being. May I be slain and divided in two, uh, as these animals are, if I fail to keep my promises to you. And so you have in the biblical testimony to the saving God of the Exodus, a God who not only uh, in, uh, is involved in the history with his people, but ventures his own deity on the fulfillment of his promises. That gives us a very different idea of what makes God, God. But I think we'd have to say there is still a deity to be ventured there. That's probably the problem with the uh, the, 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 the two-week accompaniment, I, I feel real sorry for you, kind of God, because there isn't anything actually ventured or potentially lost if God is already kind of weak and incapable or on his own journey of self-discovery anyway. <laughs> right, right. Now, you know who wrote a really good book on that is David Louie, who's now the professor at uh, the NALC uh, seminary in, in Amherst, oh, right. Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. And his book mm. was Dominus Mortis, uh, uh, Lord of Death. And uh, it's, I think, quite rightly argues uh, that in Luther's understanding of the Incarnation, Um, There is no such thing as a God who simply abandons or surrenders God's deity. And I think so the the issue, uh, so because otherwise the saving power of the incarnation would be squandered. If it is not God who's in the scale, then uh, we we are in trouble. If it is not God who is in the dying Christ, then he, Christ himself, needs a savior and cannot be a savior and so forth. And I, I think that's the argument that you, you want to indicate here, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, or again, there's like there's no theodicy problem uh, that uh, on either side, unless there is a real God, but a God who really ventures himself in the in the the business of creation. So if God is totally uh, aseity, you know, unto himself, serene and unperturbable, then you know, like, well, that that is his goodness. So he, the 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 evil of the created world is not his problem. But you know, if if God is is more or less in the same plight that we are, then he's powerless to do anything about it. So it's actually only a robust doctrine of God that can even uh, raise and then begin to address in any kind of useful way the problem of evil and suffering. 
Absolutely right, right. So let, let me just get back to my a few more comments on the monologian before we make an evaluation of it. If we haven't already been evaluated. <laughs> <clears throat> well, what the the whole argument of the monologian leads to a highly abstract notion of divine mind. As I've said, thought think, thinking itself timelessly, spacelessly, the same and just so supreme being and the imperfect creature's highest good. Now, if you get to this point in the monologian, as you indicated, I would add you wouldn't be mistaken to think that Anselm has constructed a philosophical Unitarianism, with which <laughs> yeah. contemporary Jews, Muslims, and philosophers of the 11th century would agree. And, of course, that would be attractive for an approach proceeding, proceeding by reason alone, attempting to unveil the general rationality of a general faith in the highest good of the perfect being, right? Uh, so there's a lot of common ground there that uh, exists between Anselm's approach and these contemporary alternatives. Um, but of course, and here this is kind of, I think, like a hidden hermeneutical agenda for the beginnings of scholasticism. These other uh, positions of Jews, Muslims, and, and uh, philosophers retrieving Plato and Aristotle um, all agree both that the incarnation uh, is unworthy of God, thus the later book on the necessity of the cross, and that the Trinitarian doctrine of God is irrational and um, uh, unintelligible, if not blasphemous, for implying uh, some kind of plurality in the divine being. So that's where, as you pointed out, that's where Anselm has to transition to an, ar an argument that's implicitly justifying the Christian faith in the Trinity. You know, I think this is really interesting and worth kind of, as they say nowadays, steel manning Anselm's um, argument here in in the the plight of interreligious maybe dialogue is too strong a word for what was happening at his time but but there is a real issue here again so we know that uh, Christians know that Jews and Muslims both believe in God atheism isn't a particularly live option and the ancient Greek philosophy believes in in God of some sort or other um in the in the best of the platonic neoplatonic tradition not in the you know the racy um God and goddess stories of, of popular myth, right? So that is a way to to form common ground and let's say honestly, possibly reduce religious violence and contempt and slander and hatred between different groups. The problem is that um, it appears that the philosophers have the the purest, least messy account that everybody can get on board with. But then Jews, Muslims, and Christians all have these revealed distinctives that they're kind of saddled with. And what can you do with those except 
basically say my revelation is better than your revelation. So you have, you know, Jews with their distinctive law codes and way of life that derive from the Old Testament, but are, you know, primarily to be found in Talmud and Mishnah. And of course, you have Muslims with their Sharia and uh, other, you know, distinctive ways of talking about God, their practices, uh, prayers, pilgrimages, etc., etc. And then you have Christians who, out of this group of, of four, have the weirdest doctrine of God by far. And they have, and additionally, this weird scandal of their God taking on human flesh and then dying and then coming back to life. Like, what is that? A resuscitated corpse. And although they certainly have all kinds of church law, it is not religious law in the same way that Jews and Muslims have. So, you know, I can completely see, and I can even see the appeal now of trying to figure out, like, what is an account of our religion that lets us live together? And the appeal is to go to the the most naked, um, unaffected deity you can get because it seems like more people can participate in that. And if you want to go one step further, at least one god is easier to participate in than a triune god, but not as messy as being polytheistic. So <laughs> you can almost can almost imagine like the calculated argument, like let's go for a monotheism that is as naked as possible, but I'm going to reason my way to how it is three fold and that will prove the Jews and Muslims wrong. But we still can be friends. Well, you know, the problem with that approach is that it just breaks down. It just doesn't really work. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, I, I know it doesn't. I'm just saying I can understand the appeal. And I think we should give, uh, if, if that is in the back, deep background for Anselm, and even in, in the background of well-meant attempts at interfaith dialogue now, I can understand sympathetically and charitably what they're trying to accomplish, even if, as you say, it just doesn't work. Yeah, and I, I maybe I don't really mean to suggest that Anselm is a pioneer of interreligious dialogue. I think rather his purpose is apologetic, uh, that the, the Christians at his point in history uh, feel um, ganged up on by these forces, and they feel the, <laughs> the, feel the burden of the critique that one is three and three is one is irrational and absurd. And that, that's the pressure that, that pushes Anselm uh, in this direction of retrieving a Neoplatonic doctrine of the Trinity as thought, thinking, and willing itself. Um, um, the difficulty, of course, is that, that the, this naturally, imp this Neoplatonic Trinity naturally implies a kind of emanationism, that uh, uh, the absolute God begets uh, his rationality, the Logos. The Logos contains all the possible ideas of the world. And then from the Logos, these ideas disperse into the realm of matter, chaotic matter, and then unite with them and produce an ordered cosmos. And then in that um, um, ordered cosmos, they are animated by the erotic attraction between the absolute God and the Logos, which is the spirit of life that animates, gives life to certain of these forms and so forth. So you have a picture, you know, of, of a trinity that's really completed in the, in the cosmos as a, as a kind of uh, necessary implication of the divine being or something along, along those lines. And the Arab Muslim philosophers, Avicenna and Averroes, uh, were very much in this tendency of divine emanationism. 
And if you look carefully at Augustine and at Anselm, they, for the same Neoplatonic reasons, think that divine goodness could never have been happy without having a creation. So, so it's only natural that divine goodness would want an object on which to pour out its beneficence, and, and thus that creation is, is almost a natural implication of perfect being, of supreme being. Uh, of course, that means that creation is an implication of God's nature. It is not a free act of God's will. And um, they were, Augustine and, and Anselm are not particularly disturbed by this implication, <laughs> but others have found that it is, it's very dangerous to the uh, biblical perception that God uh, does his saving uh, and creating things out of a, a freedom, that there's no necessity compelling God in any sense to create, redeem, or fulfill the creation. Right. Otherwise, you lose the the self giving love and the grace. They, it becomes just an, a necessary part of God being Himself, and then you go back to the the uh, self contained monad all over again. Exactly. The, the, now, I really want to point out here what I think is the deepest problem with Anselm's version, tacit version of the Trinity. He, when you have the monologian constructs a view of the Trinity as a purely mental process, like we've said repeatedly, thought, thinking, and willing itself, a disembodied thought, thinking, and willing itself, rather than the natural reading of the New Testament, Jesus of the Israelite Jesus and the God of Israel, whom he addressed as Abba Father and felt himself addressed as beloved son, and the Holy Spirit uh, who mediates their relationship through a dynamic history uh, uh, on the earth and beyond. That, you look at what I just described, and you can't call that a mental process. You, you, you have to ra <laughs> rather call it some kind of communal processing, some sort of communal history that is taking place uh, uh, in the course of Jesus's uh, ministry, uh, which, of course, then you have to take seriously uh, if this communal uh, history of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, is true, then it is true to God eternally. So God eternally is some kind of communion of love. And I think the biblical seat of that insight is the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, right? Which talks about the eternal love uh, of the Father and the Son, which now has reached out to human creatures to gather them in and unite them into the, into the perichoresis, the circulation of divine love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But uh, so, I can entirely imagine that that communal account that derives from the biblical narrative. The problem is that, especially if, if if what you're thinking off in the background is Jews and Muslims and their account of God is how on earth do you escape the the charge of tritheism? And I would think in that context, tritheism would be a much bigger threat than it was like for the patristic writers who they dismiss tritheism, but it doesn't seem to have alarmed them nearly as much. And it's interesting to see how in the Monologion, Anselm 
really, he, he has to use father and son language, obviously, because it is the scriptural language. Uh, begetter and begotten, it's, you know, it, it's like one step away from father and son, but like, uh, um, you know, being and its utterance and their spirit is easier for him to handle. But in the end, the only way he can really talk about father and son, because in, 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 it's a natural process. <laughs> I mean, like, he, he, the Bible also uses the father-son language uh, metaphorically not literally. It is not a literal begetting the way biological creatures beget and are begotten. But then Anselm has to say like, but well, if that was the case, then it could be a father and a daughter or a mother and a son. And why is that? Well, you know, father and son are most like each other. In fact, a proper begetting, a father and son would be identical to each other, which of course is not at all how biological creatures work. So you can just see how he's he's running in circles here, trying to map up this, as you say, the Neoplatonic Trinity to the revealed Trinity. And I, again, you know, we certainly affirm that there there is an inseparable connection between the revealed God and and the, the revealed Trinity and the Trinity, quote unquote, in and of itself. But um, Anselm doesn't pull it off. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not so sure, you know, thinking back to our episode on Gregory Nazianzus, um, I, the, his refutation of tritheism, I think, is is really quite important. All that you have to do is not reify the concept of divine nature and treat it as a fourth, really, really God, behind which stand the three figures, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if the really real God is the God and Father of the Son on whom he breathes his spirit, with that formulation, The father cannot be the father that he is without his son and without the spirit that he breathes upon the son. So the unity of God, the unity of God really consists in the father's begetting and breathing. Um, And so you um, you cannot in this social way deny uh, the oneness of God. but if you, of course, if you have a mental model of the Trinity, um, uh, then you're going to say that the unity consists in the uh, self-same um, divine substance, which is kind of uh, processing itself in these mental operations. Yeah, you know, I have to say, after I finished reading the monologion, I had the feeling this is what what preachers think is what they're supposed to be doing when they preach Trinity. Like this is, this is the real thing. And that if they, if they had like the, the gumption or the patience to do it, then they would really like dig into this, this kind of um, doctrine of the Trinity, super philosophical, uh, analytical, you know, drawing out the logical and internal implications, something like a mental model. And that somehow like talking about the biblical history of the Trinity is, is somehow not the real thing. And I don't know why that should be so persistent. And I don't think, you know, this this way is is openly taught anymore. And it seems like the, you know, a, a trinity that's so social, it's practically a party has become more popular in seminary teaching. But um, I some this this is a weirdly resilient doctrine or account of a doctrine that everybody seems to hate and find unpreachable and unappealing. And yet it just keeps it. it it's still there in the, the groundwater or something of the way Christians talk about God. Why is that dad well you know 
I, I, I do think that the problem is most Western Christians, if they think of the Trinity at all, they think what Anselm thought, a perfect being as mind which thinks and wills itself, and that somehow this metaphysical um, uh, perfect mind backs up the gospel representations of the God of Israel and his son and their spirit um, interacting in time and space for us and our salvation. So then they're put on the horns of the, of the dilemma. So far as they're actually attuned to the narrative, the Trinitarianism of the gospel story, which tell gospels, which tell this story about the God of Israel, Jesus and the spirit um, who, who then connect themselves in a dramatic coherence. That's Robert Jensen's phrase in the drama of the son's dereliction and vindication, the passion and the resurrection. Uh, if, if they're oriented to the narrative Trinitarianism of the gospel story, they're simply baffled at how thought, thinking, and willing itself can in any way correspond to these three, let alone back them up. <laughs> Fair so enough. they say... It, it's a mystery. We don't know. <laughs> they throw up their hands. It's really a muddle, not a mystery. It's a baptized Neoplatonic trinity, uh, but it's been sprinkled, not immersed. <laughs> so I guess my question is, why is the Neoplatonic trinity still there as the real thing? Like, is it just because it's been so long in the DNA of Western Western Christianity that it just it's it's going to be a long process uh, surgically removing it. I'm just curious, like why I don't feel like I was ever I've never heard anyone teach this or preach this explicitly, and yet it's just kind of there. Like the immortality of the soul is just kind of there, and that like Jewish stuff is bad is just kind of there, even with nobody actively teaching or promoting it. Because it keeps God at a distance. This the quick answer to your question is this, this way of thinking turns God into a very sophisticated idea. Uh, it, the sophistication doesn't matter nearly as much as the transformation of God into an idea. Uh, and therefore, when I have a representation, an idea of God, a concept of God like this, I can use that to avoid actually encountering God coming after me in the figure of the crucified and risen Jesus, sent by his Father and endowed with their spirit in order to change me. That's real. That's happening in time and space in the proclamation of the gospel. And to avoid that, to avoid that at all costs, to avoid really dealing with the real God who is wroth at the ruin I've made of his creation in my own life, and yet has found the way in Christ to be merciful to me, a lost and condemned sinner, that then that striking home in the power of the Spirit, uniting me with the cross and resurrection of Christ, means I am changed. Like it or not, I am changed. And I don't want that. So what I want to do is I want to turn God into an idea that I can control, manipulate, and predict and keep at a safe distance. Well, that does seem like a much better deal. So, all right, <laughs> there you go. 
No, but that makes perfect sense because I think when people talk about like spirituality over religion or or what they want out of spirituality, it's serenity. It's the serenity of the Neoplatonic God that is blissful and untouched and utterly self-reflective and never hurt and never bleeding and never betrayed and never compromised. And, you know, I, I think for a lot of people, what they want out of religion is just not to hurt anymore. And, you know, fair enough. Hurting is lousy. But um, I, I think the, the biblical narrative of God is you, you don't get there that way. If there is going to be genuine joy, it doesn't come from dodging the hurt. It comes well from sailing right through the heart of it in the cross. Right? Right. Exactly. And let's point out in the process what this does to Christology. If you don't have the kind of Trinitarianism that I'm talking about, and instead you substitute an, uh, a Neoplatonic ideology, a set of ideas about the divine, uh, th then you are forced to think th that Jesus is an analogy from below here in the musty earth to the mental trinity above, something like the earthly Jesus is to God above as the thought is to the thinker. And so Jesus' function, his saving function, is simply information to tell us what God is like so far as possible. Now, what does that do to Jesus? It's tacitly Nestorian. It turns into a Jesus who is not the Christ, the Son of God, is not the divine Logos, but signifies the uh, transcendent Logos or the transcendent Son. That uh, is another way of distancing Jesus from the one who encountered the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Uh, no, 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 the Logos is up in heaven. The other thing that happens is if, if you don't take that route, the other disastrous move that people make in their befuddlement about the Western doctrine of the Trinity is they fall into modalism. That is to say that something like um, H2O. Uh, H2O is what water really is, but it appears as steam, liquid, and ice, depending upon the environmental circumstances, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, depending upon the gestalt of history in which it is disclosed. And, of course, that, that makes a, a muddle of things as well. Um, yeah, those, those kind of Sunday school analogies, because you're like, you're supposed to teach kids the Holy Trinity. So instead of teaching them the stories in their children's Bible, which is the right way to learn the Trinity, they pull out the egg or the water or the shamrock. Sorry, St. Patrick, that was a lousy choice. And uh, yeah, <laughs> but it's so interesting that the, the instinct is that you have to go to this analytical analogy it, you you don't go to the story. Why don't we just go to the story? That's what that's that is the source from which the doctrinal shorthand and uh, philosophical summation it, uh, is derived. That's exactly right. And the and the you know without getting into a lengthy discussion of it, that's what the doctrine of the Trinity that was finally established at Constantinople in 381 basically comes down to. If you go with the story, 
The only thing you need to add to that is that God is truthful in the story of his self-revealing, self-donation in Christ. God is truthful in this story, truthful to who God is in eternity, uh, truthful now, this eternal God uh, coming and acting in time. That's all. That's it. I mean, that's that's the simple move, finally, that is taken in Constantinople in 381. Well, I like that. I, I personally like a truthful God better than a serene one. Or my idea of a God that help, helps me to distance myself from the truthful God who's coming after me. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's try to. I want to try to move now, Sarah, to a kind of an evaluation. Yeah, I, I, I want to make a claim here that I think uh, is a little bit, uh, in, in, to me, is very important. Uh, it was the greatness and disaster of the thought of, of Hegel, who explicitly built his philosophy on the Western doctrine of the Trinity, and it brought the Anselmian project of faith-seeking understanding to completion. Hegel's method is Anselm updated. For Hegel, Christianity is the supreme religion, especially in its psychological representation of the triune God. But as religion, it thinks pictorially in such representations, thus unconscious of what it's really saying, until it's penetrated and comprehended by philosophical reason. So Hegel argues that the gap between the perfect mind thinking and willing itself and the gospel narrative that we just talked about that baffles preachers so that they ignore Trinity Sunday as far as possible, uh, that gap is bridged by the actual unfolding of human history as advancing human self-consciousness. That's how you close the gap caused by being stuck in representational thinking. Uh, Accordingly, Hegel sought to make the est, the is, not significat, signifies connection between the mental history, the mental trinity, and actual earthly history. The cost is a kind of pantheism in which incarnation and cross become symbols of the, of the process of consciousness unfolding in time. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So, so history is actually God thinking himself out. So that's how Hegel tries to make it not just symbolic, but actual God's mental process. But because he does that, then actually what does happen in history isn't anything real. It's just symbolic or a stepping stone on the way towards God thinking himself fully and completely. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, well, but, but Hegel, of course, would not say it's not anything actual. Hegel would insist that it's the most actual, it's the only actual thing there is, <laughs> is that God thinking and willing himself in the process of uh, the history of consciousness. Um, and his argument about this is very interesting. He says that as a religious representation, the mental trinity of Anselm, as a timeless, spaceless, perfect being thinking and willing itself, it's true, but it's abstract, and that's why it remains idle and as such incomprehensible. Thus, Hegel argues that creation is essential to the idea of the living God. So you can't just have an eternal trinity up there twiddling its thumbs. That's not yet real. Creation is essential. 
history is actually the necessary actualization of God's uh, life trans transiting from an abstract idea into concrete reality. Only thus is the real rational and the rational real. Okay, so that's where we get the necessary creation and God on a voyage of self-discovery. Exactly. Hegel had no hesitations, and some, as I mentioned earlier, uh, acknowledged the virtual necessity of creation since perfect goodness had by nature to express itself maximally in creating. Uh, but he drew back because he knew that this was intention with Genesis 1.1. <laughs> in the beginning, <laughs> God created the heavens and earth. Hegel has no right. such hesitation. Thought thinks itself yeah. in the logos, thence cascading and dispersing into the cosmos and the diversity of materialized ideas parading through time. This is a divine self-emptying. That's the incarnation. However, in which God, as it were, becomes lost in the manifold of creatures. He calls this his speculative Good Friday. But here's the resurrection. In the spirit, the self-emptied God recovers itself, enriched by its tarrying with the negative of material embodiment, recognizing its own deity, enriched in the manifold of creation, in this way reunifying all things in renewed self-consciousness of identity. So the recovery of God's enriched identity in the spirit correlates with enlightened self-consciousness of humanity, which realizes its essential unity with God, figured in the incarnation, the very end of history. Okay. And the end of Christian theology in the Western tradition, <laughs> I would say. So we've we've already acknowledged how Anselm's doctrine of the Trinity still somehow is in the air, even though it doesn't really work at all. And you just gave this extended critique of Hegel, but I don't think you just gave it as a a, a point in intellectual history and you know a failed effort on Hegel's part. You must think that it still somehow is we're still breathing Hegel's air too, and it is causing troubles that we need to extricate ourselves from. I, I th Hegel is a very d tough nut to crack, and there's a lot of virtues in Hegel that I would like to affirm. Uh, but I do think uh, this, uh, the important thing about Hegel is that he takes Anselm's method and project and brings it to completion with this kind of um, um, uh, pantheistic claim that in his own philosophical self-consciousness of identity with God, he has come to the end of history. And I think the whole 20th century and the perilous beginnings of the 21st century refute the idea that we have come to the end of history. <laughs> yeah, or this uh, implicit utopianism in Hegel's account of the progress of religion and of God's mind. And I think what you also see here is the what Robert Jensen calls the dialectical self-cancellation of the idea, the Western idea of God which is what we call, you know, in popular language as the cultural death of God. Well, speaking of the death of God, or at least um, having some troubles accessing God, next time on the show, we are going to be talking about the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. 
Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.